Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. We are here in Bristol, Vermont, and we are with Bill Elwell. Hello, Bill. Hello there. It's great to be with you this morning, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about PTSD, but mostly about moral injury. This is a concept that's pretty new to me, uh, but everyone I talk to says you're kind of the guy. So we're excited to hear what you have to say about it. Well, I, I don't know what it is to be the guy, um, <laughs> but but I certainly come with a, you know, I certainly have looked at it from different different angles and certainly see why it rings true to me because of my experiences as a as a first responder and because of the work that I've done as a as a trauma informed peer and a trauma informed. Uh, chaplain in kind of the public safety, public health world. Yeah, absolutely. So if you don't mind, you want to tell the listeners a little bit about kind of your story. How did you kind of end up where you are today? Usually that's pretty interesting for people to hear that kind of winding road of how we ended up on the Code 321 podcast. Sure, sure. That one question you didn't throw out there ahead of time, right? To get me ready. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, really, ultimately, I got involved in the peer support side of things. Um, I was a, a, a plumber and a volunteer firefighter. I'd been a chief in North Bennington, Vermont, down the southwest corner for um, a couple of years. I'd been in Pittsford for a little bit because I served as a, I was actually one of the first two site technicians when they first opened the fire academy. So I was there for a little bit and then back to, to Shaftesbury, almost our hometown to kind of right next door to where I grew up to build um, and became a captain and began to build my family there. And, you know, I've, I'd been really involved in the fire service since I was 14. Um, going through those teenage years, things are going crazy. Parents are doing the best they can, but not necessarily it, putting it out there the way it needs to be. Yeah, yeah. And um, when they when they began, when they finally separated and headed into divorce, uh, the place that I worked, moved with my dad was around the corner from the firehouse. And ultimately the folks in North Bennington, they kind of took a took a liking to me, took a risk and said, yeah, we don't have a cadet program, but you're welcome to hang around. And so I learned so much and began to ride, do trainings, ride on calls. And it just kind of went from there. And um, to say that the the fire service and the world of public safety is is family is not a cliche for me. Yeah. Um, it's become a reality in, in like every season of my life and every place that I've lived. And highly, con- you know, again, always mission focused, value driven, um, preparing for that one call where you're going to make the difference, wanting to be the best, always wanting, always keep an excellence first in my life. Um, didn't matter whether I was getting paid or not. Yeah. It was about my commitment to what I was called to do. Yeah. And, um, and so about, I was about 97, um, as a captain first arrived on, you know, we'd been to a house before pretty rough shape. Um, probably by some standards could even be considered a, a hoarder home and things like that. So get a call in the middle of the night to go back to that residence, um, for a fire in the building. Um, second, we get second later, we get a call that says, yeah, you know, we're, there's, we got confirmed. There's somebody that's jumped from a window and there's still somebody in the building. Um, department hasn't had, they haven't had a fatal house fire in any, in any of the history of anybody that was in leadership there yeah. at the time. Yeah. Which actually goes, in some cases, back to just after the charter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, um, so I show up as the first arriving uh, officer on scene as a captain. I, I advise our engine, you know, to skip the hydrant, don't lay in. We need to, we need to try to make entry as fast as we can. Every room in the building at that point is flashed over except for one, and it's where the guy was last seen in the window, and so. 
advise somebody to throw a ladder. I grabbed my SCBA, um, had a probationary firefighter behind me. He grabbed an SCBA. Again, total tunnel vision, totally every, everything in my nervous system was activated and ramped up and uh, moving forward because I want to make a difference. If, then, as you know, we yeah. don't have a lot of time at that point. Yeah. You know, flashover is coming and we know what that's going to mean because every other room's flashed over. Sooner or later, this one's going to. Yeah. Yeah. So um, 25 below zero, throw on my pack, start to climb up, make entry into that building. Um, and I'm sucking as hard as I can and I cannot get air out of my pack. And so making a decision, do I push on? Do I try to get past this, try to do something? Fortunately, I fortunately had enough mindset to say, nope, this isn't working. You got to back down. Yeah. And um, I had told him, I said, I had no idea what we're going to do. Just follow me. Now I told just back out because this isn't working. Yeah. As we hit the ground, the room flashed over. Yeah. And um, another rescue attempt, knocked it down another attempt. Obviously, it was going to be futile at that point, yeah. but they were able to find the guy inside the window. Um, ultimately, I walked away from that, dealing with so many different images, traumatized by them, traumatized by not being able to process it because nobody knew what to do with it. Um, traumatized even further, that sense of betrayal that comes when, you know, officers begin to say, yeah, we're just not going to talk about this anymore because it's going to go away. Yeah. You know, then we follow this call up three weeks later with another um, double fatal house fire. Um, Man. and it just, you know, I went to a local counseling agency and it was, she was more fascinated with my story. Um, and then we just kind of moved from that story into let's talk about your childhood. And she didn't know what to do with trauma. Yeah. And looking back. Yeah. And so frustrating. Yeah. And, uh, trooper by the name of Vermont state trooper by the name of Mike Sorensen was working really, really hard to start the state police, uh, members assistance team program. He was introducing them to critical incident stress management. He'd played a little bit of a role in kind of doing a, a diffusing for us immediately after the incident. Yeah. But that wasn't enough. And I didn't know there was any other options. So I figured I'm just going to have to suffer with this. Yeah. And I'm realizing more and more inside with that inside the internal conversation that, wow, this is not, I can't handle this. I can't do this. But yet I'm putting the front out there that sure I can do this. Yeah. And just wasn't going to work. I'm watching everybody else turn to alcohol, turn to other things. And I'm like, yeah, this isn't going to be healthy. I'm not yeah. going down that road. And yeah, Mike and there was dispatchers in the barracks at the time. And I'd, I'd visit with Mike and good friends. I started in the fire service. It was a dispatcher. We talk half the night if I couldn't sleep. Yeah. And eventually Mike talked me into going down to, um, onsite Academy and Gordon and Gardner mass. Um, at that time that was the only type of, facility where you could go and get away from it all to really work on a traumatic event, um, in the country. Yeah. Um, Hayden Duggan had started it. Um, Ruby Ridge, Waco, Oklahoma city, uh, departments involved in these incidents. That's where they're sending their folks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so eventually get the help I need by working with, cause it was a peer led program yeah. when you got there Yeah, yeah. and it was, but yeah, you had the clinical support there as well. And it began, it, it was life changing for me. Yeah. I began to realize that, you know, handling trauma, some of that was not my, some of that was because I just, again, I was, I was a plumber at the time, a volunteer firefighter. I didn't have a college education. I didn't know a whole lot about how the body operates. Yeah. And so coffee, carbo, coffee, caffeine, and carbohydrates, you know, yeah. that was, that was great for living the fast life of a plumber. I do but, like those. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But what, that was like, 
that was my core core meal, you yeah. know, and it was not enough to sustain my body. Yeah. Um, I was just making things worse and didn't even know it. Yeah. So just gaining information yeah. about trauma and stress and how it was affecting me and just realizing that, no, this doesn't have to destroy my life. This isn't going to define who I am forever. There are certainly times where for over 30 days, I would have met everything in the DSM-5 that, that you know, again, identifies and diagnoses PTSD. I would have met all of that stuff, but I moved beyond it. Yeah. And the cool thing too, is I've had a, a, one of my partners actually went down and got some treatment at a center in Vermont. That's very similar to that. Yes. And the, the cool idea behind that is I know I was able to talk to him before and he was a little apprehensive and yeah. you know, kind of like standoffish and we're pretty independent people. Absolutely. We're the rescuer, right? We don't Abs- need any rescue. You got it, man. <laughs> and, uh, and then to talk to him when he got back, it was really interesting because he was saying how he got down there and he was just surrounded by people that were exactly like him. Yeah. Like it wasn't. It wasn't some, you know, broken home syndrome where you go down there and it's a bunch of people shuffling around in bathrobes because that's what we think of when we watch one flies over the cuckoo's nest. But in reality, it was just a bunch of working people that just had something egging at them. And, uh, you know, they'd go hiking, they go, you know, fishing, they go spend time together. And and like I've always said, I I heal the best when I'm around people that occupy the same environment as me. Yeah. Like if I feel bad about something or I'm stressed out <laughs> or I have a bad traumatic experience, you know, yep. I want to be is the firehouse. Absolutely. Like right at the kitchen table, drinking coffee with all the guys. Cause I know that they understand. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. And there's some, there's certainly some clinical mindsets to say, well, when you've experienced trauma, we just want to take everybody and send them home and keep them out of this for a while and yeah. bring them back in a few weeks or in a few yeah. months, or maybe tell them to get a different career. And the truth is not only does that hurt our communities, but I feel it hurts the person. Yeah. It doesn't always You help, just took sure. their support system. You took every support system yeah. they had away from them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you talk about you talk about ostracizing somebody and yeah. going against their values. It's like, that's at the top of the list. I know, especially when, you know, when we'll, we'll talk about moral injury in a second too, but you kind of have this core identity of who you are. And I think people like you and I, you know, like I, I didn't know you were from North Bennington. That's actually cool. My first fire job was Bennington. Oh, no, that was my first fire department. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I grew up running all over North no Bennington, Shaftesbury, like wow. all the area. Yeah. Um, Pownall. Yeah. yeah. I used to live, uh, I actually lived in, um, Bennington and went to school at Mount Greylock in Williamstown. So I used to sure. go all on down through Pono all the time. Yep. Um, but yeah, small world. And uh, so I just, I remember being a young kid. I also started as a cadet down there and saw all kinds of stuff. I had no preparation for no. as a 16 year old, No. you know, all kinds of dead people in car accidents and stuff like that, which was very, very new for me being that age, you yeah. know, you're, you're studying math, you know, at, two in the afternoon and then at two in the morning, you know, there's some car fire somewhere and you're trying to do whatever. And, uh, what I took a lot of solace in was that ability to go to the firehouse and, you know, yeah. have a chicken cookout and yeah. hang out with guys and sell Christmas trees and wear the t-shirt. And yeah, I think that brings a lot of those core identity values to, to fruition. Yeah. And you talk about now you have a traumatic event and you send someone home to stare at their ceiling fan going around. That can be tough for people. Absolutely. And, and again, you know, our, our mutual friend in in Beth Jacobs that you've had on before and Lori Gurney, um, and the work that she does as a clinical psychologist for our state, um, Lori, especially will talk at length 
about how at those ages, it's not even about our lack of experience, but our brain is not wired at that point yeah. to process that kind of kind of trauma. Yeah. Um, she said, usually, especially with us, us guys, it's like 24, can be like 24 to 25 years old, Yeah, which again, you know, it puts a whole different perspective on, on going to war at 18. Yeah. But, um, I know. you know, but that's a part of this conversation. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, you mentioned, you know, we're the rescuer, right? And that was part of what I learned was that some of the struggles that I had is because I was, I was a rescuer in a, in a family where alcohol and things like that got in the way Yeah, is I was growing up. And it's not uncommon for the oldest male and in in for the oldest child period, I guess, at this point, um, in a situation like that becomes the rescuer. Yeah. Who's going to fix the world, who's going to save the world. And that really carried on from what I was going on as a teenager into the next stage. Yeah, I actually listened to a really interesting podcast on Apple called The Line about Navy SEALs. I don't okay. know if you ever yeah. listened to that. But, I haven't heard that one, but um, I, I love the Navy SEAL world and the things yeah. that come out of it. And they did this huge study on Navy SEALs, um, and they actually they ran through a really difficult recruitment period um, yeah. right after kind of 9-11. And they did this huge study and recruited all these people to try to find ways to recruit SEALs that would be successful going through BUDS and would actually make it through. Yeah. And they found the strongest correlation between a successful Navy SEAL and uh, recruitment mm -hmm. point was uh, people who have difficult childhoods, which Absolutely. is actually really interesting. And it kind of plays off that idea that you're talking about is a lot of people that really excel and find value and identity within the yeah. fire service and safety and rescue yeah. and emergency response are people that don't always come from the nicest backgrounds, Yeah, you know, and no. it, it can definitely provide a very special home. Yeah. And uh, I know I love the fact of I get to go into work and sit around the kitchen table and, you know, we all have our flaws and a lot of us come from, you know, different yeah. backgrounds. But when that bell hits, man, we are, like you said, excellence first. We're on a it, mission. We're going to make it happen. It, it, right. Right. Which and it's so interesting. That's, you know, and, it, and again, so much of this is about stigma and we don't want to talk about the truth and, and these type of things that get in the way because, you know, I have chiefs all the time and especially watching this transition through the years. Yeah. Say, you know, but we, we, we can't sit back and talk about that people could get, be exposed to something and actually end up with a, with an injury because of what they're going to see and do, because they're never going to, you're never going to want to stay. Yeah. It's like, well, we do that with hazardous materials. You have to have awareness courses and operations courses and know how to deal with something that, with a chemical that might impact your body. Why wouldn't we want people to know how their body could impact them in a negative way? And let's not let's not focus on let's not focus that conversation on post-traumatic stress syndrome, post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic stress injury. Let's talk about post-traumatic growth for a minute. Yeah. yeah because absolutely. I'm pretty sure if trauma was going to be the end of, the, of humanity, humanity probably would have been gone a long time ago. Yeah. But we have the ability to make choices and and to. To, to be a part of a community that can actually help us to grow through it if we're not afraid to to put it on the table. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, I always tell, I think I told this story on one of the other podcasts before, but I went to a call with a hypothermic person and it, um, I kind of always had this identity of myself of being like the tip of the spear and I want to be the apex of the pre-hospital provider and like Absolutely. the best and excellence first yeah. and kind of this like grasp as much information as I can, help everybody I possibly can every yeah. single time, you know, never make a mistake because I train for every situation. Mm, you got that, it. That's kind of my whole identity. And we went to this particular call and um, it didn't, 
it didn't go as well as it could have. There were things that should have been done differently. And then the, the powers that be from the, you know, different places that, you know, so, so supply input, uh, basically told us that we made a mistake and we failed. Yeah. And it, and it was, it turned into this whole thing where we had to have a big meeting and we had to sit around a table and, you know, people looked at us who we were already, I mean, we were all the guys who normally are best friends are barely talking to each other because we're hurting so bad. Yeah. And now we have another group of people saying, you failed, you didn't do the right thing. You should have done this. Why didn't you know this? Why didn't you do this? And that really, really, really affected me for a long time. Absolutely. You know, for like for a, a couple months, I was definitely yeah. off um, to the point where, you know, stuff would trigger me and I'd be like, oh man, this sucks. And yeah. uh, I just kind of avoided it and didn't really worry too much about it. Um, and then I started to do a little bit more research and reading and talk to some people about, you know, what's going on here. And the thing that actually helped me climb out of that hole is diving back into the situation and being like, okay, what happened? Yeah. Why did that fail? And then I went to the fire chief at the time and I said, let me lead a training on this. This right. is a difficult algorithm to navigate. The hypothermia protocol in our state protocol book is one of the hardest algorithms to yeah to, you know, differentiate. There's different drugs you give based on different temperatures or different interventions you give. Yep. There's electricity, there's CPR on and off. There's do this, if that, and it's, it's almost two full pages of different things you have to remember. Right. And when you're in a situation like that, that's that stressful. It's very, very difficult to process that type Absolutely. of writing. So I, I asked the fire chief and I said, let me train people on this. And I, I was able to sit in front of, you know, a hundred people going through this training and, you know, do a PowerPoint and do scenarios and walk through the protocol and create color coded cheat sheets to help people, you know, and draw from my experience and say, I don't want anyone in this room to ever go through what I went through. Yeah. Let me show you what we failed on. Let yeah. me show you how I got through it. Yeah. Let me show you how to be successful in the future. Um, you know, and we found some really huge things about our department that we didn't know. You know, there was a, there was a technology error that happened during the call that none of us could troubleshoot. And yep. so I, I downloaded the manual on my phone and I read why that did that. And I called the company physio control and I said, yeah. why did we get this message? And they're like, Oh, well you do this. And then I took that information and I shared it with everyone. I said, this is what we didn't know. Yeah. You should know this now because we failed. Let's not fail again. Yeah. And, uh, and I actually, you know, this is the first time I thought about it since, you know, two years ago. And that's just a testament to that felt like my personal transition from post-traumatic stress from that incident, dealing with that to let's create something good out of this. Absolutely. That was terrible and that was horrible and I always yeah. have, you know, a, a bad memory there. But let's put that to bed and let's create some forward progress here because, you know, I don't remember the exact saying, but um, failing once isn't the end of the world. We don't want to be re repeating right. that failure and that's, right. that's going to make it a lot worse. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's kind of, the, for me, that's a perfect segue to talk a little bit more about the moral injury side of this. So it was, it wasn't until about four years ago that, um, and it was actually, it was after a, a day long seminar that was, that was held up in Burlington with Dr. David Griffin. From, That's right. Yeah. I actually went there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. When, when Dr. David was in, in, talking about his experience in with Charleston fire and losing nine firefighters and, and, and the incredible weight that came with that and how, you know, he led with that message of if we don't tell these stories, people die. Yeah. And, at some point in the middle of that day, I realized there's more to my story that I don't understand. 
Yeah. And I can't tell that story unless I figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so with the help of uh, Lori Gurney, as, a, as a, both a, a friend and a colleague, began to unpack some of the trauma of my life from a from a 10,000 foot view, yeah. and building a timeline and coming forward. Right. And ultimately, in that process, discovered that while I had focused on post-traumatic stress and the impact of that and how real it was in my life at that moment with the fatal fire, it wasn't until during that time period I came in contact with another fellow, Kevin Ellers, that's a chaplain and a disaster leader for Salvation Army out in the Midwest. He introduced me to the language of moral injury. Yeah. And he said that a moral injury is not always caused by taking someone else. Again, he was speaking to it from a, from a military law enforcement perspective. It's not always caused by taking somebody's life, but it can just as equally or just as likely be caused by believing that you should have been able to do something and didn't. Yeah. And ultimately like you, and like you just described, I had prepared my life for that day because I was never going to fail. Yeah. My problem is I'd always define success by the outcome. Yeah. And that, so therefore, if the outcome isn't that this guy's alive, if I did everything that I could, followed everything that I'd learned, all these few things went along in the middle, I must have failed. If I had overcome it or if I hadn't backed down the stairs, you know, there was a million scenarios I played yeah. out in my head that could have gone differently. Yeah. And none of them were realistic. And none of them were, I mean, when you step back and look at them, it's like there's no normal human being would ever believe that you could do that. Yeah. But yet somewhere in my mind, I had created this experience where I was going to be the superhero that was going to save this guy. And yeah. when I couldn't, it was devastating, man. Oh, yeah. And so, but again, just being to realize that, yeah, that's part of who we are and how we're wired and how that makes us good at what we do. But it's also the thing that's going to get in the way when something happens. So now how do we, you know, again, how do we step into that world where we put systems in place and understand it enough that we can deal with it in a, in a healthy way. Yeah. I think of, I think of, I, I so love Gordon Graham's video where he gets into talking about those, those high risk, um, events, those high risk, low frequency events with yeah. no time to decide yep. and how they're the events that we've got to prepare for. Yeah. And I think the same is true of preparing ourselves as individuals in a, in a physical way, in a psychological way, in a spiritual way in a relational way by having a community around us that we can totally count on. Um, even we've experienced something that we can't make sense of together. Yeah. And then how do we, how do we build that up and be ready and then have some things, some tools to draw from at that moment? Yeah. The moral injury stuff is really interesting to me because this is, I'm ashamed to say this is uh, pretty new for me. Yeah. I, you know, I just stumbled across this a couple hey, months hey, ago. Don't, don't be ashamed. Like I said, I'm talking, I, you know, again, I'd been doing trauma stuff and studying it that, several instructor courses under my belt from the yeah. International Critical and Stress Foundation. Yeah. And I'd never heard of it. Yeah. It's very <laughs> new. Yeah. And so, and, and it, it fits so well for me. And there's been a couple moments in my life where I kind of stumble across information and it feels like you yeah. know, uh, a key going into a lock and it just it opens up these new doors. Great image. Because when I, when I was dealing with that um, hypothermic incident, I remember you know people mentioning kind of PTSD and some coworkers talking about yeah. it and other stuff. And I always... I still to this day was like, I don't think it was PTSD. Nope. It does it didn't feel I didn't feel in danger. I didn't feel like that person was harmed. I didn't really necessarily yep. see anything that traumatic. Like it didn't fit yeah. right. And people were saying that. I was like, I don't think, but there were still symptoms that were telling me something was up. Sure. And then I read this definition of moral injury. 
And I just, you know, briefly wrote this draft hypothesis in my head of you are the best possible pre-hospital provider and you will save everyone that has the best possible chance and you will give them every opportunity to successfully overcome this critical life-threatening injury. And in that moment, I did not use every option. I missed an option because I didn't know or because I made a mistake. I made a mistake and I cost that person a chance at survival. And you can play the numbers game and, and any way you slice it, you know, they've done a ton of research on this case and they realize that, you know, that person would not survive that. Yep. But in my head, there was one bullet point that I did not do. Right. And in my head, I will hit every bullet point. And right. that's my identity as a pre-hospital provider is any chance that your loved one has, I will give them. Yeah. That's how, what I prepare my life for. That's why yeah. I train. That's why I don't just do 24 hours of training a year. I do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And yeah. like I own an emergency training company yeah. so that we can prepare people to hit every bullet point. Right. And to come to that realization that I did not do yeah. what I am built to do was very, very tough for me. And I read that I, I you know, that whole concept of moral injury. And I'm like, man, that's, that's gotta yeah. be it. Because, because no matter how committed we are and no matter how good we are at building that up, we're still human beings. Yeah. And we can, and certainly speaking for myself, I can hold myself to expectations that are not realistic. Yeah. yeah. They're not going to happen. But yet, because we live in this world where we want, everybody wants answers, right? We want everything in the world to be transparent. We want all these different answers to be put out there. And, and ultimately there are some things that we're not going to be able to explain in the end. Yeah. And, and that's, it's that type of cultural pressure that I think also has to be really addressed to continue, you know, the moral injury. Even if we change how our departments operate, if we change how we operate as individuals, there's still got to be a place where the, where the, where the culture steps in and says, man, I'm, some of this isn't just going to be able to, to capture it in a black and white statement that can yeah. be told in 30 seconds because yeah. it's just more complicated than that. Yeah. And it's so tough. You know, I learned so much from that podcast line. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. And they were talking about how the whole concept of the way they train those men and women that are going through SEAL training is, and they interview some of them. And it's sure. so interesting that they have this super intense, aggressive authority and confidence that they're going to win. Right. You'll, you'll interview them and you know, they'll say like, I'm going to win. I'm going to like, I'm going to find you and I will get you like, then that's how they're built. And it's so, it's so incredibly powerful for the SEAL teams to go perform an operation because they all carry that mentality of like failure is not an option. Right. We will overcome this challenge. Right. And that's the whole point of all of that training they do is no matter how terrible you are, I mean, they, they are, you know, you know, having these incredibly grueling trainings during buds to challenge these people where their, yep. their body and their mind are screaming at them to stop because they are in physical danger and they have created this mentality of I will win. At right. all costs. And so the, the question that this podcast was talking about in relationship to moral injury is now what happens when you don't win? Right. When your whole identity is I will win. Right. And that's your identity. And now you don't win. Right. What do you do? Right. And that's a challenge. I mean, that's, it's not necessarily, you know, a PTSD thing. Maybe it's not related to danger. Maybe it's not related to this, but when you are receiving information that does not line up with what you believe the information should be, that is uh, the concept of this moral injury. Right. 
Right. And one of the interesting things that I read in this um, article that we're that we're talking about here is the concept that PTSD is a lot of the times associated with the events that happened, you know, whether what you experience or what you witness someone else experience. Mm-hmm. And moral injury is kind of that, uh, you know, nagging splinter that shows up later. That's like, that's not necessarily related to the event, but related to how did I perform in the event that your interpretation of what you experienced? Should right. I? Um, so let me see if I can read this. Go ahead. So go, well, just what came to mind is, you know, the only thing that you can do is redefine the win. Yeah, exactly. That, right. You've got yeah. to be able to help that person take that failure is not an option to a new place. They've got to be able to, you know, I've got to be able to decide that overcoming this is not failing and overcoming. This is not going to be an option for me. Yeah. I've got to get around. I've got to get my way through it. Yeah. And how do I reframe it? Yeah. And it's something, even something as simple, you know, pops on my head. I was very athletic when I grew up. I just loved yeah, sports sure. my whole life. And, uh, you know, that old analogy you hear from people, it says like, you know, as long as you tried your best, you know, you yeah. have hundred percent on the scoreboard, whatever, like whatever the scoreboard is, as long as you are. And yeah. I was always the type of guy who's like, you know, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about winning. Right. I'm, I'm going to win. Right. Every time I right. will win. And uh, my high school soccer team only lost three games in three years. All three of them were the state championship. We went undefeated the entire season, all the way through playoffs, and Whoa. we lost to the same team twice. Wow. And so that was, and I never really thought of that as like any sort of like mental, you know, right. challenge or obstacle because it's just sports. But in reality, you know, when you're a teenager and you dedicate three years to yeah. a varsity soccer team and you're going to the state championship and you're beating everybody you right. come in contact with and you encounter this one team and you lose, then you do it all over again for the course of a year. You get to the end and you lose again, especially since I was a defender and I did a slide tackle, which got a yellow card and they oh. scored on a penalty kick. They mm-hmm. beat us one zero yeah. off my slide tackle. Right. And that was like, that was really, really challenging for me as a teenager. And like looking back on it, there's plenty of people like, it's just sports. It's just a game. But when your whole identity Absolutely. is I'm a winning, you know, varsity soccer player and I will win. And all yeah. of a sudden you lose. And all of a sudden it's your fault theoretically because you performed the slide tackle that caused them to score. And the best thing my coach said to me, he was an incredible coach, one of the Blair Dills um, from Williamstown, Mass., one of the best coaches I've ever had in my entire life. Yep. He took me aside afterwards because I was like, this was like, like a week and a half later. I was like, I was like talking to him. I was like still broken up about it. And I was all upset and he was really good. And he said, let's just remember if you didn't perform that slide tackle, it still would have been zero, zero. Yeah. Like it's a team. They still have to score to win. Right. Like you are not responsible for the loss because the offense still didn't score. They had 90 minutes to score a goal and the other members of your team didn't score the ball. So it's just as much their fault as it is your fault. You know, you may have contributed to this and so may have the other players. But we had two shots that hit off the goalposts. You know, there's so many little whys in the road that could have changed the outcome. Right. And he said, the one thing you did did not cause this outcome. Nope. And he said, and then he gave like four examples of like, think of all these stops you had. These could have been goals. And he just kind of put things in perspective. And as weird as it is, the thing that still sticks with me to this day is that whole concept of if the other members of your team had scored, what you had done would have made no difference. True. And like, so it's not just me, it's the team. It's all of these things. Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, we as rescuers, we tend to 
place all the blame on ourselves. Yeah. We focus on what yeah. we did wrong and we associate that with the outcome. Right. And in reality, you know, it may be something like, uh, you know, with the David Griffin thing, like they're using three inch supply line, you know, yeah. or whatever it is to fight a warehouse fire. Right. You know, so how, how much can he really do? Right. As a pump operator. Right. They'd never even heard of large diameter hose at that point. Exactly. Which blew my mind. <laughs> exactly. You know, um, so I just want to read these two. Sure, please. Um, yeah. These two uh, definitions yeah. of moral injury, because I yep. thought it was really interesting. So it sounds like from the information I read, it kind of came to fruition during Vietnam was with the first time this even touched on anyone's radar. Okay. So the Vietnam definition is a betrayal of what's right by someone who holds legitimate authority in a high stakes situation. Okay. So they were thinking of, it came from um, officers who were leading, uh, you know, members into an ambush and their members would get killed. Right. So they, they felt like that was, it's their job to keep them safe. They get injured. Absolutely. And, you know, and then uh, it kind of developed um, during Iraq and Afghanistan, this new definition came out, which said, perpetrate, or perpetrating, failing to prevent, bearing witness to, or learning about acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. Yeah. Which is kind of similar. It's a little less, um, it's a little more technical than the first one. But I know for me personally, you know, on kind of the stories I've shared, the biggest challenge that I ran into is it had nothing to do with me feeling in danger. It had nothing to do with me witnessing someone else in danger or being harmed right. or hurt. What it had was I believed that there was something about myself and I was receiving stimulus that was not lining up with that. And yep. my brain was like glitching because it couldn't right. address what I was experiencing. Right. And that was, that was a big challenge for me. And I've seen this, the more I think about it, the more I've seen it in partners and members oh, yeah. and stuff like that. It's, it's this concept of, we will win. We will right. accomplish this goal. You know, don't worry, ma'am, we'll go get him. We'll go right. get your baby. And what happens if you can't? You're right. How do you process that? Right. And, and, you know, I, I look at it more as a longevity piece too. And we don't want, you know, I've, I've seen really good, solid people go through a traumatic experience and walk away forever. Absolutely. You know, I, when Absolutely. I was, in, you know, when I was, uh, down South kind of in our area, you know, there was a guy 25 years old, young buck, strong, smart, driven firefighter, one interested, made like yep. every call, which is a big deal for when you're a volunteer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. And, uh, we had one really terrible situation, just turned in his gear, never came back. Yeah. And the question is, you know, if people need to make that decision for themselves, uh, you know, that's, that's awesome for them. And, right. you know, we want to support them in that and make sure that they find their path and all that. But we don't want people to have an experience like what you had and leave over something that yeah. they can just, they can manage. You know, we can find a place for that puzzle piece and right. we can help you get back and realize that, you know, this whole thing, Beth and Ashley, and you always say is, you know, you are not bad. Right. What happened may have been bad. Yeah. What happened to you may have been bad. You are not bad. Right. You know, that whole identity yeah, of the... The issue versus the person. And I think where we run into problems as a rescuers is um, we'll blend the two together a lot. Absolutely. You know, yeah. And, and we just, again, we focus on that negative side of things. You know, like, you know, yeah, it's, I understand what you're saying about the soccer piece, but, but what if you step back even farther and say that to win is to have an undefeated season and it really doesn't matter what happens in one game that a title is hanging on. Yeah. And I get it. That's a stretch to do when you've, yeah. when you're preparing to win that championship. But really, is it better to, you know, is it better to have had, you know, who, who's who's the real winner yeah. here? The team that had the undefeated season 
over the team that never won a game all season long, but won a championship. Yeah. Who's the real winner? Yeah. And I think the coolest thing that I always love about team sports, which yeah. I'm such a huge proponent of team sports, is the fact that it teaches you these life lessons about how to handle failure. Absolutely. You know, we go through an entire season, we lose a game in the biggest stakes match we have. Yep. I mean, our high school people were chartering buses and driving three hours to come wow. watch us in this game and we failed and lost. And then to show up the next season, you know, right. in pre in preseason training and say, we are going to win. Yeah. Like we are going to remember that experience and we're going to win and yeah. get to the end and fail again. And I think it helped bring everything into perspective for me just in life in general that yeah. there are going to be times where you go undefeated for a long, long time and you fail. Right. And all you can do is dust your cleats off, like allow yeah. yourself to feel those emotions and then move right. forward for the next thing, you know, and you and I have both been on calls that went well and Absolutely. calls that went bad. And my thought process is do the best you can every single time. Yeah. Don't make the same mistake yeah. over and over again. You know, identify those things and rectify them. But you are not a loser because you lost a game. No way. And, fa you know, yeah, no, you, you hear quotes in today's world. I think one that pops to mind right now for me, failure isn't final. Yeah. Well, that's that's one thing in a, in a, in a soccer game, right? You can wrap your head around that and move yeah. forward. Yeah. But when, when we're talking about failure isn't final is actually a literally totally credible life and death situation we're talking about here yeah the stakes are different yeah for sure you know? and if there's one thing we love in our society it's a comeback story absolutely for sure you know and there's there's uh you know that whole process of thanking someone who suffered you know severe trauma or moral yeah. injury and then you know it's got to be rewarding i imagine from your perspective to be able to sit there and watch someone go from i am a failure to I am not a failure. Yeah. I failed, but I am not a failure. Yeah. Like the immediate, you know, and as soon as you separate yourself from that gigantic anchor that's attached to your yeah. leg, you can start to swim towards the surface again and start to process, you know, build from the ground up, you know, yep. who am I? And, and for me, like talking about the hypothermic incident, that will always be a part of who I am. But instead of it being a painful you know, experience for me, now it's a motivation to Absolutely. when I meet an EMT student, and we talk about mountain rescue and avalanche recovery, I'll say, come over here for a second. Let's look through this protocol. Yeah. Imagine that you dealt with this. And then to have a student come back and say, hey, I had a hypothermic call the other day at Camel's Hump, and I remembered what you said, and it made a ton of sense. And, sure. you know, we didn't give epi because their core temperature was below 90 degrees. Like, And that was really helpful for you to stress that because I never would have known. And for me as a provider to go through my own painful experience not knowing that information – to know that I helped someone avoid that same painful experience creates yeah. uh, a change from that painful cornerstone to now this is a positive cornerstone that's right. helping other people. Right. You just, you just, you just redefined the win. You yeah. just reframed the situation because of that. Yeah. And yeah, it took time to do it, but yeah. the opportunity came, you know, I think the last thing I, one of the last things I want to make sure I get out to you, I, I remember an interview with, um, it was while well, we were focused on post-traumatic stress at the time, but um, with Vermont Digger, when, when, you know, there was the push to get legislation in place so that, um, you know, PTSD behavior health type issues would be presumptive yeah. um, for those rather than some of the crazy boundaries that are there. And I think we're, you know, this is one of those things where we could do a whole nother cop prod podcast on how that stuff works. Yeah. And yeah. Hasn't worked, sure. but, but ultimately, um, the thing that just kind of popped out in the middle of that conversation was, you know, 
when it comes to comes to this type of stuff, if I go out on a fire call tonight and I slip and fall and it was in the middle of winter. So if yeah. I slip and fall on the ice and twist my knee, I'm going to, I have to go to the hospital and get it checked out. I know that I'm going to be taken care of and that the, they're going to provide the care that I need. Yeah. I know there's people around me that are going to help me get through it until I get, you know, whether, whether I have insurance that covers all of it or all the challenges that come with it or not, I got a community that's going to stand behind me and beside me to get there. Yeah. Given what we know today about trauma, about moral injuries, about all these things that we're learning more and more about, given all of that, why in the world wouldn't I expect the same kind of support if I am injured by a situation that I experience or doesn't um, come out in a way that lines up with my values? Yeah. Why shouldn't I have that same support? Exactly. I, I creating that community, creating that culture is the game changer for us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you, you can probably think back to, uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, read stories about what the mental health was like between world war two and the early two yeah. thousands. And this whole concept of, you know, it was almost like, you know, you'd, you'd uh, have this injury and they would just send you to a farm upstate and they'd be like, yep. Oh, he can't, he's, he's shooken. He's shell shocked. Yeah. He can't yep. handle anything else. Yeah. You know, and this, this concept that, you know, we suffer some small fixable injury and all of a sudden they bring yep. us out behind the bar and send us up, you know, upstate. Yeah. That's not, that's not sustainable. You know, these are, these are fixable problems. And, um, there's one thing I've learned with my experience around people who've suffered trauma, just dealing with, you know, my own friends and family and, you know, and coworkers is that it really doesn't, it, I've never heard of a situation where someone's really struggling with, you know, PTSD or moral injury or traumatic events, and it's just gone away on its own. Right. A lot of people are waiting for that. Um, and usually, you know, my experience is they kind of hit rock bottom yeah. and then they kind of, you know, like one of my you know, I had a situation where, you know, so someone suffered some legal trouble and, you know, kind of, you could kind of see them spiraling mm -hmm. down and they went through that legal trouble. And then it was kind of, okay, like, I don't, I don't think it's just that. Right. I think it's probably something else. Sure. You know, and, uh, I think there's definitely a reduction in the stigma. I know Beth has been doing Absolutely. a really great yeah. job. You and Ashley, everyone's been doing, um, awesome. And a lot more people are seeking these kind of checkups than you realize. Yeah. You know, there's someone who's sitting next to you, you know, the big mustached, you know, mm -hmm. you know, uh, 25 year guy may, maybe actually, maybe they need a little tune up once yeah. in a while, you know, maybe yeah. that cardiac arrest bothered them because it looked a little bit like their dad, you know, yeah. and maybe, you know, that's, that's what they need and there's no harm in getting checked up. I mean, you go to the doctor once a year. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You know, and you, again, you talked about the World War One, World War Two. according to the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, the history that they've kind of put together on some of that work. Um, it talks about World War One was really our, our, our go to was send anybody, send everybody away from the unit, get them away from their people, let them rest for yeah. a while. That didn't work out so well. No, but we watched what the French were doing and reapplied that in a new way in World War Two. And the strategy there was that as quickly as you can, you take that unit as a group and you get them just far enough from the front line and you give them an opportunity to freely share and talk about that experience without the fear of any retribution. Yep. And that it was a game changer for people coming home. Yeah, I actually listened to a TED talk about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. And it talked specifically about uh, veterans 
coming home in their transition period from Absolutely. coming, you know, from the battlefield back into their home and family life and how a lot of spouses and families and friends would notice that they're a little bit dissociated and they had a lot of trouble understanding why you wouldn't want to be home. You know, right. one of the old military analogies was always, um, you know, people who are home want to be overseas and people who are overseas want to be home. Yep. And one of the reasons they did a bunch of scientific research on people who are in, you know, battle groups overseas and they realized that training together, eating together, spending time together, it's filling that piece of Maslow's hierarchy of needs where you're a part of a group, yeah. the group mentality, the clan aspect. Yep. And to exactly what you're saying, and now all of a sudden you take someone away from their group, their tribe. I mean, if you go back you know, a couple thousand years and you were to go to some tribe and take an individual and isolate them. Yeah. Humans do not do well no. isolated. And we have a tendency to do that to ourselves sometimes sure. when we run through trauma. Absolutely. You know, and I think what you're talking about is so great where, you know, sometimes it's okay to just get a couple of buddies and go reshingle a roof together. Yeah. You know, and, and we've talked about this with Ashley too. You know, I, I no longer do I go up to my coworkers who are struggling and ask them what's wrong and make them tell me what's happening. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll be like, Hey man, let's go for a hike. Absolutely. And they'll be like, I'm, I'm fine. You don't need to do this for me. And I'm like, no, I want to go for a hike. Let's just hike. Right. And then we go for a hike and I'll just be like, Oh wow, what a nice tree. And then usually within 15 minutes, like I'm not okay. Something's yeah. wrong. And it's like, Oh sure. I'm ready yeah. to talk. And Ashley always, you know, stresses it's that it's that occupying space, giving people the ability to feel like they're part of a group open yeah. up comfortably without the fear of yeah. retribution to someone that they know understands because yeah. I've had similar emotions. And it's, it's breaking that stigma of I am bad because I don't feel okay. Right. You know, it's like, Hey man, right. listen, I've been there. You were, you came and, you know, had a hike with me and went kayaking when I was all messed up from the hypothermia thing. And I'm going to hang out with you and you're all messed up from the car accident. Like, right. We'll just hang out. It's no exactly. You know, and that, that's huge. So it is, it's a game changer, man. <laughs> So, Bill, if people are interested and want to hear more about you and kind of reach out to you and kind of see what you're doing, how would they get a hold of you? What's the best way? Um, probably the best way uh, is go to www.unbrokencord.com, um, which is my uh, kind of the work I've done most recently is is under the name of First Responder Corps Wellness. Um, developed that as an LLC. Um but operates with the heart of a not-for-profit. Nice. Um, but but the bottom line is didn't really want to get back into the world of, of boards. And so, again, try to – a lot of my work ends up being volunteer work with folks. And at the same time, some of it is, you know, contracted with some different departments to do some different things. And I'm all about getting education out there beforehand. I totally believe when I look at my experience, if somebody had given – if I had the information that I needed before this happened – I never would have ended up where I ended up. And I don't yeah. say that to blame anybody. We didn't know any better. But yeah. the only education we were doing at that time, the only time I heard about trauma or stress was on the diffusing 12 hours after that call. Yeah. And, and the truth is that's the worst time to take. We, we can't take in new information at that yeah. point. We yeah. need to remember what we already know and rely on our muscle memory when we've experienced it. So building up ahead of time is a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Bill, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Great being with you, Nick. Have a great day. Thanks.